Sabayde everyone and welcome to Radio Okpok Talk. I'm your host Rachna. This is the podcast that crisscrosses the globe talking to the pioneers in the world of folk art, to the change makers in travel and tourism, and to the innovators in remote communities. Broadcast from our weaving studio on the banks of the Mekong in beautiful Luang Prabang, we travel the world to meet artisans and creatives from Tashkent on the Silk Road to the Berber villages in Morocco's Middle Atlas, from the Quechuan Highlands in Peru to the colorful silk weaving villages in the misty mountains of Laos. We bring you a series of conversations that delve into the minds of these custodians of culture. All aboard, let's go. speak with Pippa Small, a renowned jewelry designer who collaborates with artisans to create ethical jewelry collections. Humans have been wearing jewelry for millennia. Some of the earliest artifacts of humankind are ornamental pieces of jewelry. They're ceremonial, ritualistic, and commemorative. They're identity markers. In some cultures, jewelry can be endowed with wellness and healing attributes. They glitter, glow, and mesmerize making us desire them wholeheartedly. As human civilization has evolved, however, jewelry has gone from a celebration of beauty to an industry rife with exploitation, environmental degradation, and displacement. And this is where Pippa Small comes in. Pippa is dedicated to creating a more conscientious and ethical marketplace for jewelry. My conversation with Pippa focuses on how her collaborations have helped provide economic and cultural grounding and security. Her work has taken her all over, from India to Sub-Saharan Africa, to Peru, Bolivia, Panama, Afghanistan, Myanmar, and Jordan. And she's not done. While Pippa waits out COVID in London, her home base, she's already planning to collaborate with women miners in Peru and Aboriginal women in Australia. So let's head over to London and meet Pippa. Pippa, welcome to Radio Akpop Talk. Good morning. Thank you, Rachna. How are you? I'm very well. It's really lovely to reconnect with you and to have you here. And I'm really looking forward to chatting. How's uh, London this morning? Well, London is fine. We're back in our struggling lockdown, but um, I, I feel a little more optimistic as there is this vaccine kind of lingering now in the future. So I feel like there's an end in sight to all this. Yes. Yeah, me too. Well, well, do you want to get started? Yes. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> Back in the day, Pippa, you were a medical anthropologist, and then you went on to work on land and human rights issues with indigenous communities in Borneo, Thailand, and India. Why did you make the jump to working in jewelry? Well, I, I really struggle with sometimes answering that question because it seems mm. such a peculiar um, connection. <laughs> it's kind of how does one get from one place to another in anything in life? And I suppose they're just these threads of of interest that kind of join us from one stream to a river to another. And at the time when I was um, working in Southeast Asia, I was very interested in looking a lot at um, 
human rights, but also cultural identity, um, you know, the whole kind of question of the right to be who you wanted to be. And within the indigenous context, I think that was particularly important because at the time, we are talking sort of over 20 years ago, a lot of the dominant um, governments were were really pressuring communities to assimilate and adopt um, kind of alien cultures and languages and things. So I, I was very interested in the cultural knowledge that was linked to biodiversity and land. And I could see that many of the communities I was spending time with, which were quite traditional and quite isolated ones, um, were struggling to kind of live a life on their traditional lands within this changing world around them. And I saw that there were, you know, peoples who had been sort of told for generations that everything they did was wrong. The way they farmed was wrong. The way they hunted was wrong. The way they dressed was backwards. The way they um, created things was primitive. You know, there was this kind of constant messaging of, of um, negativity. And I just thought they have so much to offer. And there was so much kind of beauty and creativity and using the materials and resources around them such ingenuity and genius really so while I was there I sort of felt that um, the the pieces they were you know everyone in the community made things it wasn't like there were kind of groups that were artists and artisans and others who were something you know everyone from old men and children they would make things from whether it was to carry arrows or whether it was decoration or weaving or so like everyone was making things and I just could see that there was also a disconnect between Sometimes them trying to reach markets, outside markets, and perhaps not quite getting what um, the outside market wanted necessarily. Or, And it just seemed that something like jewellery, which is such a, an ancient and kind of, I don't know, hugely inexplicably, in a way, a hugely important element for us as humans, um, as we sort of discussed earlier, it's not something we need as people. It's not something we use as a functional object in our life. It's something that's purely emotional, purely to do with almost something magical because it's hard to exactly define what it is and why it is that for 20, 30,000 years, we have been making and adorning ourselves with different materials, whether it's shell or bone or stone or metals or gold or diamonds. We've, we've been doing this forever. And I think there was something in that kind of the universalness and the, the timelessness. So the, some of the communities I was working with were making things, whether it was um, with plaited palm or ostrich eggshells or gold. They had the, the knowledge and the skills and the materials, but often lacked markets, fair prices. And I was seeing some skills were dying out as the young saw no future in these hand-making skills. So I thought, you know, this was an opportunity where I could collaborate to work with artisans as I had always been interested in jewellery and sort of made my own before then to kind of work with artisans to create designs that perhaps could bridge um, and perhaps tailor a little bit to Western markets while keeping, you know, their kind of um, design aesthetic true to them, but work um, to keep people employed in their community and also to feel this renewed pride in their ability and their tradition. Um, you know, looking at somewhere like I worked with the Kuna Indians in Panama, and it was interesting to see that the old jewelry that the elders had and made was absolutely beautiful with this amazing patina and these, they were large gold um, breastplates and nose rings and earrings and all very figurative, all full of story. But the young had not learnt the stories. They were making a very different style, but much more kind of 
machine made looking, which I thought was very interesting. It no longer had this sort of handmade feel, even though it was handmade. They were making it as though it was a kind of mass produced thing. They were sort of making everything exactly the same. You were losing the human hand. So in talking with the elders and with the community about re rediscussing the stories and the mythologies behind some of the designs, the young goldsmiths got really excited again and they were sort of re-inspired to learn more from them to their elders and we went around and looked at all the grandmother's jewelry and compared it to what they were making and it was kind of an interesting process but it, it brought a, a new life to jewelry there. The word ethical undoubtedly defines you and your brand and it comes up quite often um, in fact all the time like what does ethical particularly in relation to relationship to jewelry making sourcing gemstones and metals like gold and silver mean to you well it's interesting because uh, it's i think the word ethical is um an important word but i feel sometimes it's being bandied around um i, I mean of course there are these instances of greenwashing and things but i mean the word ethical seems to just appear now a lot and we're not really defining or questioning what does that mean? Because, you know, it's, it's in danger of kind of um, not deceiving people, but I think unless one is clear about what that means to you, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a delicate area. But um, when it comes to jewelry making, I would say there's three particular areas that are quite important and we are by no means 100% there. So this is, um, you know, t bearing in mind that we are not um, in any shape or form clean entirely. But these are the areas where I see we can move and we're starting to move and how it's helping. Um, firstly, and most importantly, is the environment, of course, and mining, which is where our stones and our metals are coming from. So the whole area of extraction is huge. And knowing that there are millions and millions of informal gold miners and gem miners around the world, it's a massive employment area, but it's also a massively dangerous environmental degradation area. So looking at, um, I've worked with mines um, and visited mines in Uganda, in um, Bolivia, Peru, to see how gold miners are working and to see how pilot projects of fair mined or fair trade gold mines are working because this is an area that's hugely important. And as more and more um, small scale mines move towards these, um, committing to these standards, which are to do with, um, well, fundamentally health and safety, but um, areas of, for example, containing mercury, which is one of the most dangerous substances. Obviously, arsenic and cyanide are also used in gold mining, uh, as well as a huge amount of water. But the mercury is the one that stays and poisons and kills uh, forever. So containing mercury and then moving to not work with mercury at all is one of the most important areas and that's what these mines are trying to do and with something like fair fair mine standard it means every year your kind of standards are put up so if in year one you achieve containing mercury um fair pay for miners uh, gender equality no children etc then the next year the the pull is put up to a high so then you must achieve you know moving away from mercury altogether and then the year after so each year it inspires the miners to work harder to clean but it's also something that's rewarded because there has to be incentive of course to move from something they've been doing and that's perhaps easier and move to something that initially might be more difficult but then eventually obviously there's enormous payoff 
So um, you pay a premium for the gold. You ensure that the miners are paid the fair price because, I mean, tragically, there are areas where miners are paid with rice for their gold or are kind of bullied or intimidated to, to hand over gold that's worth on the international market thousands, you know, for $10. Or So it's an area of high exploitation and um, fairness and environmental is vital. Um, the other area for me that's really important in jewelry making is sustainable jobs. And this is something that I think I felt increasingly over the last few years is really vital. Um, so many parts of the world are facing not just conflict, but also impacts from climate change. So forcing people to leave their homes because they cannot live there anymore, literally, um, starts this kind of drift of people's moving either out of the country or to different parts or to from rural to urban or and I think sustainable jobs is vital because it allows people to be where they want to be and in their communities, but it's also a safe um, and if it's fair, fair paid and if it's creative, this is something that I think has enormous um, and perhaps uh, long reaching effects because it means a community can stay together, which is obviously for some people what they want. So I think that's really important. Of course, there's areas of keeping cultural, traditional skills alive. There are certain techniques and handwork in general, which is threatened in many places. And then I guess the kind of invisible side, the intangible side is how it makes people feel. Um, you know, someone who works perhaps in a, a factory line versus someone who's making things by hand. And what it does quietly is to give such a sense of, of pride and achievement and and dare I say happiness <laughs> in creating something that, you know, I mean, and beauty, beauty has a role. I mean, creating beautiful things with kind of thoughtful and careful care is something that I think has a, the process of making by hand has a quite meditative um, impact on you. You're, you're working with your hands, you're focused and concentrated. The outside world is kind of pushed back for a while. And in the end, you know, you pick something up and you've made that and it's beautiful and someone's going to wear it and it's going to survive forever. It's going to outlive you and your family. And it's and that's something to be really proud of. And even for a whole, you know, for the Afghans, for example, where I work in Kabul, for them to know that their pieces leave Afghanistan, go out to, to Paris or New York or Sydney or Tokyo, that's kind of, you know, that's quite something to be chuffed about. I think that's something that does have a quiet but important impact. In 2008, Pippa was approached by Turquoise Mountain to work with goldsmiths in Kabul. Turquoise Mountain is an international aid organization founded in 2006 by Prince Charles. Turquoise Mountain's collaboration with Pippa is a natural fit because both are committed to reviving traditional crafts and to providing jobs, skills, and a renewed sense of pride. While Pippa continues to develop her own collections, She's also working closely with Turquoise Mountain in Afghanistan, Myanmar, and Jordan. In each of these countries, war and displacement have wreaked havoc on cultural life. Here, Pippa explains what it has been like, from a human perspective, to work in Kabul, Yangon, and Amman. Your most brilliant work has come through collaborations with Turquoise Mountain in Kabul, um, Yangon, and then most recently in Jordan. Can you tell us a little bit about each experience and the difference and differences in working in each country? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been just kind of 
the biggest joy of my life working with Turquoise Mountain. I mean, I've been doing this sort of work for probably 10 years before I started working with them in different parts of Africa um, and South America. But I, I just think the, the mission of Turquoise Mountain is really interesting and important. It's looking at um, craft and culture and seeing that in areas, it started in Afghanistan, so in that particular case, conflict, um, but other other issues as there are, uh, obviously in Jordan, there's a great deal of um, refugee crisis going on. And it's about looking at peoples and the importance of their sense of self, their sense of cultural identity or identity full stop and saying these are actually really valuable um they're valuable qualities that as human beings we need to hold on to because if you like for example if you look at um jordan where in some of the camps where predominantly syrians are living there's there's a sense of um a generation who are growing up who've never experienced anything but camp life they're you know maybe 10 years old they, they might have been children they might have been born in the camps they don't even have a sense of what syria is or was or what it means so their parents are struggling to kind of cope in the camps and don't have necessarily the the time or space to culturally educate the children so it's kind of it's a very worrying thing because you take a, a human community and you take out the grounding of their their heritage and you know you have a a dangerous predicament i think because we need a sense of of self rooted in more than just ourselves we need to be a, we're a collective we're social beings we need to have a sense of our culture too so i think that was the basis of turquoise mountain both um architecturally and in terms of craft um and each country has been massively different but it's amazing also how kind of connected we all are whether it's jordan myanmar kabul or or italy or england you know the basics are the same we're all people we're all it's all about human relationships and relationships to the world around us so i think kabul's been it's a huge huge place in my heart because i feel like they've suffered so much and they're such kind of resilient incredible people and having worked there now for 12 13 years <clears throat> I've kind of built real relationships. Um, and there's always this time when I'm in the workshop there where we have a lot of storytelling. And it's just because these are relationships of not just work, but, you know, we're people. So we sit down, we talk about our families. They tell me about, I don't know, love affairs that are going on in the workshops or marriages or babies that are born or <laughs> or just what it's like to be in, in a region that's very troubled and and the fears in everyday life which is kind of incomprehensible to sort of have that sense of fear the moment your child leaves for school will you see them again will you will you make it through the day i think there's such a kind of high level of, of fear and tension in the country that people have to deal with and it's sometimes just the sitting we sit on the floor when we're working and it's just that exchange of stories or or just listening you know just listening to people's anxieties or small you know little micro stories what it's like when you know the teacher left um the school and how how lost the children felt without her or you know just just little stories like that that i think are important exchanges um so that's been a big part of working there i think myanmar has had obviously a troubled history and it's very much a time of healing there but again with the the kind of um 
pressures of, of mass production, particularly being squeezed between Thailand and India, that it's very interesting to see this new resurgence of handwork and pride in that. And that kind of training internships with women, which has been fantastic because being a kind of male-dominated area, it's wonderful in both Afghanistan and Jordan and Myanmar to see women making the jewellery. And then Jordan has been a, a different experience. This is newer for me. I think there's a great sense of um, trauma. Um, this conflict is ongoing, and I think you really feel that. But uh, again, there's such importance. And what the aim is, is to create sort of um, skills and independence that when these men and women go home, or even if they're staying, you know, they can create their own small businesses and support themselves, not just financially, but, you know, also mentally to have something to focus on. And uh, You had a really nice story, and I wonder if you could tell it too, as the, where one of the women you worked with said that she was truly <laughs> happy um, as she was working. That was yeah, so I sweet. Think, yeah, you that know, story was um, a woman who had started the training course um, in Amman, had said that this was the first time she'd been happy in nine years since the war started. And I think that just said so much about, um, you know, she was working, learning a new skill, working in a team in the workshop with other women and, and men. And there was something about really bringing home that the reality, it sounds so abstract that, you know, creativity is an important part for us all. But to hear her say that this being in an environment where she was creating something, she had control over the material she was working, she was learning something new, which is such a huge thing for all of us. And to say this had brought her happiness and joy. And I guess the that really, um, it kind of drove me to, to really uh, feel this project is incredibly important. And because I guess that's the thing with jewelry, you know, on the flip side of us knowing how important it is to us as people, it also... You know, you can see areas where people would go, but jewellery, you know, jewellery is the last thing we need. We don't need more jewellery. Jewellery is, um, you know, an irrelevance or, or a, a kind of superficial or a, it, it shows that the making of anything, it doesn't matter. It could be a sculpture, a piece of art or the making of a shoe or a, it's the making. It's using our hands. It's what separates us as human beings is creating and creating beauty is so important. It changes the way you you relate to your environment. I mean, I saw that particularly in Kabul. At the, there's a school of craft in, in the, an old, beautifully restored part of um, the city. And it's kind of, it's, it's so interesting to walk off the streets, which are chaotic and polluted and noisy and tense. And you go into this school and it's kind of um, beautiful uh, lime wash walls. The wood is all hand carved and you smell a scent of sort of cedar everywhere and there's beautiful calligraphy painted on the walls and hand-blown glass and you sort of you behave differently you're in this almost sacred realm where the human is so um so part of it as opposed to being in somehow alienated from your environment this is an area where you feel so part of the environment but you also feel you must be very careful and respectful and and that sort of translates to the way you relate to other people as well as how you would treat that space and i think beauty has has a huge role for us it's not a superficial thing it's a very important thing actually without it we would be very uh, sad indeed <laughs> Through the pandemic, many of us as individuals, communities, and businesses 
whether we're in the West or the East, urban or rural, are realizing that we need to make adjustments in the way we live and perhaps in the way we think. Uh, for you personally and for Pippa Small, what does the reset look like? Well, it's interesting because it's, I've met a, a lot of people who have said, you know, they've had a wonderful three months, you know, when we were in lockdown, it'd been a wonderful experience. They'd, you know, perhaps gone to their country house and felt they'd had this, you know, very peaceful time. I found it, um, I, I must say, in the beginning, I found it terrifying. And I think it's very hard to ignore how this has impacted not just oneself or what's happening in England, but the entire world. I mean, the suffering this has created is huge. And it is a privilege to say this has been a pause that has given us time to um, look at our lives and ourselves and our, but it's also been an immensely difficult time. Um, and for some people, it's, it's brought terrible grievances and death and loss. Uh, but it has shaken up the world, unlike anything else in our generation. So it is massive. Um, and yes, it has uh, given us a moment to think and rethink and make adjustments. I know in the beginning I was uh, terrified. I was sort of sleepless and uh, I was worried I'd lose the business, everything I'd sort of work for. And there's a huge dependency of, of hundreds of artisans on us that we continue to be able to produce and sell their work. Otherwise, they have nothing. So it wasn't something that happened in a kind of... Uh, in any sort of lightness for me. It felt very frightening indeed. <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. it, it, this roller coaster. So I think um, after kind of reaching a point where I felt that we had a, a hope of, of surviving, um, then it was this kind of interesting freefall of a, this new life that had no plans. And I think as, as humans, we're very much planners. I mean, that's why we envision things in the future and are constantly innovating is because we, we look forward and we make plans. So having this time where there were no plans to be made because we didn't know what was going to happen. And um, for me personally, not traveling, which is what I've been doing pretty much nonstop for the last 30 years was also quite interesting. Um, on a personal level, it gave me time with my children who are quite young, mm -hmm. which was uh, amazing. And it also sort of changed the meaning of home to me. Home had in the past been a lovely place, but it was sort of you got here, you unpacked, you were home for a bit, and then you repacked and you left again. Or, you know, I was at work all day and the children were at school all day and you just had a few hours. And, you know, it was a, a very different place to the one it became, which was right. from we were here all day. And it was, so it's changed what home means or what I would like to see as home. But um, it gave us a sense of mortality and, and, a need to ensure our acts were really thought through and the consequences were checked. And it was kind of, um, it, it's certainly been interesting. I'm not sure if I fully kind of um, digested everything as we're sort of still in it, of course, but I think vaccine in sight means, you know, perhaps we're coming to an end, but it's, it's, it's certainly interesting. And I guess it's made me more committed to it than ever to kind of grow our, our more ethical side of the business and create jobs and beauty and pride in as many places as we can. So I have a kind of lineup of <laughs> other places that I'm eager to get to um, whilst continuing in all the ones we are working, but there are projects. Uh, where do you think you're, where do you think you're headed next? Well, like when we allowed, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, well, there's a project in um, the Choco region in uh, Colombia that I'm very keen to work on. So with the African, oh. Afro-Colombian uh, goldsmiths. And again, it's ethically sourced gold and um, quite a troubled region too. Um, I'm really keen to work um, on a project in Australia with Aboriginal women on craft and jewellery making. Uh, there's another project in Peru, which is women gold miners who want to move into gold into uh, goldsmithing and creating jewellery rather than working in the mine. That's in the Andes. So I think there's an endless amount, <laughs> and I kind of wow. want to do them all. <laughs> wow! Can I yes? Can please. I come with you and carry your bags? <laughs> And this brings us to the end of another great conversation. Please visit the Pippa Small website to learn more about Pippa's work and to see her lovely collections. The techniques, designs, and motifs are fully explained, and you can also meet the goldsmith or artisan who created your piece. Pippa mentioned fair mind standards in our conversation. If you're interested in learning more about buying fairly mined gold, please visit Fair Mind's website or Pippa's website. Both web links are provided in the description section of this episode. And of course, please feel free to email me with any questions or feedback. Radio Okpop Talk is a project of Okpop Talk, a social enterprise dedicated to providing income opportunities for women weavers and artisans in Laos. Thank you for listening and we'll connect again soon.